This is the light which shall give revelation to the Gentiles. The mystery of God in the world for the salvation of the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Glatrad podcast. Thanks for tuning in again. We have a really special guest this time. We have Cameron O'Hearn, who's the producer for the Mass of the Ages film. You may have seen the first one, but did you know that the second one is coming up in just a few short weeks? Let's see. Actually, yeah, just a few short weeks on May 26th. Is that right, Mr. O'Hearn? Yeah, just a little less than less than two weeks away. 26, 13 days. Ooh, less wow. than two weeks. Amazing. <laughs> so be sure to, to uh, check out that that film. It's going to be, I believe, on YouTube. Yep. And if you haven't seen the first one, I encourage you to check it out. It's a wonderful film, beautifully shot, and uh, and it's going to be a trilogy of sorts. So Cameron, welcome to the, the program, the Glad Trad podcast. Good to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I love I love the name. Where did where did that name come from, by the way? I know it's a uh, <laughs> It's a term that's been thrown around a, a few times. Well, we we knew that it rhymed and that uh, Father Dave Nix wasn't doing his little Gladtrod podcast stint. He has a couple episodes under that name. So we we swooped in. Uh, but, uh, but Rudy and I were born out of two things. It was really uh, the tail end of the summer of shame. Um, you know, Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report came out. Everyone was like kind of disgusted. And also we both had recently come to the traditional Latin mass and it just that it completely rejuvenated our faith and we were like, we need to get this out for everybody. And we also aren't really, we're just like a couple of jabronis, right? We're not really angry sorts of people or anything. Uh, you know, we're pretty based, I'd say. So we just, you know, we, we've been doing this for almost three years now, actually, if you can believe it. Uh, and, and so far, so good. I wonder if the glad trads are the ones who used to have no traditional background and then become traditional, traditionally minded and then have like this appreciation for it and aren't coming with all this baggage of like a history with it and bad memories of mm, whatever. That's a really good point. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were discovering at the outset of our podcast that uh, we just were feeling uneasy. We just didn't have peace in our hearts and um, we were in sort in a sort of way, refugees from bad liturgies. And we wanted to just highlight the the really wonderful aspects of tradition, of finding tradition, the resurgence of Catholic piety, traditional forms of piety, those things. So, yeah, we wanted to capture uh, a lot of the joy that we were experiencing. And um, that being said, you know, I am sympathetic to people who have a chip on their shoulder coming from really bad liturgies, but uh, it's, it's a lot better to focus on the positive, I think. Yeah, and we we've done interviews with people um, like like Charles Clum, for instance, was such a fun guest because we've just talked to people who grew up during the changes. We all we all three of us didn't, you know. So I think sometimes talking to older traditionalists, um, those who stayed in tradition when every all the walls fell around, I don't um, I don't blame them for feeling a little ostracized, and I know that that manifests a whole part of the subculture. Um, it's very clear, I think, with all of us, like we would all agree probably that, you know, the church militants on the march, that tradition has reared its head because that's what it always does. Oh, probably should silence my phone. And, um, you know, it's kind of exciting because we have this time and I think your documentary is such a part of that. Um, Guadalupe Radio, Rudy, our podcast, like I think it's all just as part of this great, beautiful part of Catholic culture that's that's in the ascendancy again. And it's going to take a lot of wailing, grinding of teeth and a lot of fighting. But I think I think we're all pretty excited about it, I would say. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't know if you've if you've read this statistic. Um, it was I think it was conducted with a, a couple surveys. It, it they'd be the first ones that would pop up online if you search like Latin Mass. How many Catholics attend Latin Mass? And um, there is a resurgence in traditional Catholic piety and Latin Mass attendance, but when you look at the big picture of mass going Catholics, so practicing Catholics, only 2% go to the Latin mass. So on the one hand, I do see like, when you look at at these smaller communities, it is exploding um, in attendance and and interest. Um, but then the bigger picture, you can you can feel a little bit like, wow, there's, a, there's still a lot of work to do. <laughs> and uh, that's why it's good that there's podcasts like this and and films and and there there seems to be more and more traditional things popping up like every week. And I think I, I think we're also kind of like a really interesting part of the internet, which I think is part of the fun discourse, you know. Um, and this will kind of get into into mass of the ages, right? So I know uh, I've only seen the first episode, and I'm excited to kind of dive into the second one because the trailer was certainly fun. Um, it's a lot of stuff that was, we talked about the history of the second Vatican council, Bugnini, Ottaviani, like Lefebvre, like all these guys, but I wanted to kind of, we wanted to kind of break apart you first. So are you primarily a documentarian? What has your own filmmaking experience been? And how have you found that in like the Catholic space? Cause I know that that's a horse of a different color inside filmmaking too, you know, Catholic filmmaking. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I've loved filmmaking. Um, just the general act of filmmaking since I was in sixth grade, you know, I think we all had experiences, you know, playing with our friends or our dad's video camera and making kind of silly the magic of, I can put this here, press a button, go do something in front of the camera and I can put it together and like make something completely new and give people an experience. That was a very uh, addictive thing for me early on. So I made a ton of just silly stuff with my friends and it wasn't until high school I realized that this could actually be a career that, you know, you go to see movies in the theater, you don't realize that people actually do this full time. Um, and so it started to click like, well, I think this is my calling or mm -hmm. I mean, it's I think it would be a good fit for me. And then film school didn't really happen. And instead of that, I bought a video camera a mini HDV, uh, 4K, uh, 60i, like a yeah. 60 interlace. Wild West, let's go. <laughs> um, camera. So you, when you film something, you'd have to like capture it in real time to your editing station. So you'd have to like plug it in and it was mini DV tape. So you have your tape in there and then you're like, capturing it in real time and it has to like log the footage in and then it was always i would always had to de-interlace it because there's all these lines on it oh, i remember or oh, i remember <laughs> <laughs> spent like four grand on that camera back Ooh, in the day oh, yeah. good days <laughs> but yeah it was an investment into like this this is what i want to do i was living with my parents for a couple years after high school and i bought books on screenwriting i wrote a feature screenplay wrote a couple shorts was getting really getting my feet wet. And I thought my plan was like, I'm always thinking about five years from now and like mm -hmm. 
what's the next step? And I always thought it was going to take like, well, I need, you know, I need to build up this portfolio so I can get into a film school so that I can, you know, four years into that, then I can get married and then get my first job. I was looking like 10 years out, like I'll, I'll have a career. But I felt a calling to do net ministries. I don't know if you guys are familiar with net ministries. Yeah. Okay. I, I've had a few friends that have uh, done that. Which is interesting because it felt like I was putting my life on hold or said another way. It felt like I was um, giving God a year of my life. Like I realize you're the most important thing in my life. So I don't want to chase this career. First, let's, I'm at a good age. Let me give a year of my life to you. Well, two years later, so I did missionary work two years. I had met my wife, uh, found a, a, um, a university I was attending classes at and had my first job in video all because I did this missionary work because I met the right people, got the right experiences. That's Providence. It is. I mean, I thought I was pausing my life, but it was fast forwarding it. You know, it was shooting me forward. And then I was just, you know, a video intern at the beginning. So I was just making videos for a nonprofit helping them at their, with their fundraising banquets. I, I developed kind of a, um, like a process, a rinse and repeat process for how to make a fundraising video. So I decided to jump out on my own 2017 to uh, start my own business, doing that full time. And then fast forward doing that three years, then 2020, right before the world shut down, um, we got everyone, we got a few people on my team in town to shoot the Kickstarter film for Mass of the Ages. And it was another leap for me because it was instead of doing something for clients, it was the first time I was doing something that was just a creative endeavor. It was like, um, this isn't for someone who's going to pay for it like a product so much mm -hmm. as it's a creative thing that I hope people will want to see and pay for. And it was a, a big risk, but a calculated risk and backed by, you know, research I was doing. So yeah, Catholic filmmaking. I mean, in that three year time period of when I got my first job before I, and before I made mass of the ages, I had so many conversations with, Catholic organizations like I want to make a film or I want to do this really cool thing or a documentary or whatever. And it was always, it always came down to money. And uh, when you're, when you're a Catholic filmmaker, people ex expect you to like tithe your time. Mm -hmm. They don't expect to pay for quality. They expect to, to have you donate your time. And then on the other end of that, any catholic -y filmmakers think that the creative product is just passable because it just needs to be passable because it's a religious catholic film so you're it's like oh since this is a catholic film catholics are gonna like it right my catholic grandma is gonna love it and she will <laughs> and um but it the the bar is so low on both ends on like the money coming into catholic art and the Catholic art. So the, the, they're both at this really low threshold 
which makes it difficult for anyone who's like has a really good idea to to get things started. That's that's so true, you know. And I'm I'm presently senior editor at the Augustine Institute, right? So we're our our platform for a lot of our content is formed. So there's a Catholic audience, but you know, it's a full on production studio. And I I would I I'm like you, like I was doing I was doing the whole secular rat race in Los Angeles and I, I loved it. I was I was doing my thing. I think that God finally called me into his service, brought me back home to Colorado, and I'm doing what I love. We're working on a current project on everything death and dying, everything eternal rest. And it's cool because what's funny is like as a Catholic filmmaker, what people don't understand is on one hand, yeah, like you're a professional. So, you know, it's nice having pet projects. It's nice shooting pretty parts of the church and doing something you want to do on your side hustle. Um, but if it's going to be something for the church, the church ought to be the patron of the arts. You're a professional. You have a family. We all have families. We all have houses and whatever it is. Right. So, you know, it's, it's funny to me that like on one hand, Catholic art, what it means to us is this is this is the sort of culture, the Catholic culture that produced works of Mozart and Dante and Michelangelo. Um, but also, you better believe the Vatican paid for that. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I love the grassrootsness. I love the grassroots of Mass of the Ages kickstarting. And, and now that it's it's out and about, I, I think it's just such a beautiful piece. But I also it's funny because a lot of our conversations around the office go we don't want to just make good enough because your Catholic grandma would like, would love it. And with mass of the ages in particular, or with any other kind of project, you know, it's going to sound kind of silly of me, um, but I don't want to just make things for my Catholic grandma. You know, like I know what that looks like. People think like, what makes a film a Catholic film? Oh, it has Jesus and it's the absence of anything bad. Right. There's no <laughs> yeah. sex, drugs, no rock and roll. Right. Yeah. And so People but it has those of, glow effects too. Yeah, like yeah. At, at all the highlights, like the white parts are all like glowing. Oh, they're all they're all blooming, and it's yeah. You just, have to have the blooms in there. And I mean, I'll call it sure. out. Like, there's a. I mean, I can't call it and out. A full soundtrack. Because, <laughs> like, I've seen, I've seen, we've all seen bad religious films, and because these guys are, I don't know them anything, but like a lot of times, as as Catholics, people feel like you have to run almost like the Protestant rat race of filmmaking. You have to make like I was really surprised when I found out that God's Not Dead was made by two Catholics. I was like, no yeah. way. Yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. You know, I yeah. can, you know, it's pretty sad when you think about it. Well, and I get, I get that that's the kind of world that a lot of religious films, it's like bare minimum, a lot of fluff and it's the absence. But what's cool about the Catholic mind. And I, I think that you're, I'm sure that this is a lot in the second episode coming up of mass of the ages. Right. But it's like the Catholic mind dwells in risk and nuance because it's there that we find the authenticity of faith. Like, I love how I love how the Catholic mind is not a once saved, always saved. That'd be because there's no journey of the hero, right? Like, imagine reading Dante and Dante, like, finds, you know, he's in a forest dark. He meets Virgil and he's like, oh, whatever. Like, I know I'm going to heaven. It's cool. Like, it's, you know, two pages <laughs> long or something, right? So I yeah. think it's like, this Dante, of yeah, that's a good way to put it. Dante, Dante's Catholicism is rich and deep, complex, almost seemingly contradictory. Um, offensive. There's a lot of shades in there, and that's a good way to put it. I, I've, I've never thought of it that way. And you know, to to that. go back to something you said, you know, this film. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. I, I would. I would love to get your take to to understand what was the motivation to highlight tradition, um, because a, a small portion of traditionalists, 
you know, if you look at it objectively, we are a very small minority within the church. Um, the the uh, the fact of the matter is that although we're we're small, you're still trying to highlight something that I think is missing uh, at the moment, which is the highlighting of our patrimony. This patrimony, this rich tradition that we seemingly have put under a bushel basket. So, what my question for you now, I think, is to to kind of I'd like for you to talk about what inspired you to specifically focus on tradition. You, you asking that question just makes me realize how much the Lord has um, guided me just one step at a time. This isn't like Cameron O'Hearn's master plan and we're finally on step 99, you know, and uh-huh. now we're releasing this film. It's really like the Lord has been a light unto my path. Um, his word has been, you know, a lamp unto my feet. And so originally... So the Pew study that came out in, um, was that 2019 or 2018? I forget, which said that 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence. I had been going to traditional Latin mass for a while and I was glued to my feed um, to see what the bishops and what the content creators were going to say about it. Because I knew there was something to be said for the way we pray on Sundays, affecting what we believe. Mm-hmm. And then um, I'm a big fan of Bishop Barron. Uh, I, I listen to him first, you know, pretty religiously. I like the content he produces at Word on Fire. But to be honest, I was disappointed when he did his show on, you know, his utter surprise at why. Catholics don't believe in the real presence. And they, they took audience feedback, you know, and people were saying liturgy, liturgy, liturgy. And instead of giving it its place and, you know, agreeing that liturgy has a big part to play, he just kind of poo-pooed it. And hmm. um, it was, it was really frustrating for me because he, he so quickly dove into it's about catechesis and and that's his platform it's built on catechesis and teaching and you know engaging um with the word and so i get why he's so into catechesis but you got to believe and you got to understand that the church has always held that the way we pray affects what we believe lex orandi lex credendi it's been around since like the fourth century like that's a dictum of the church we've held to um, that, you know, the way we pray is the foundation of what we believe. So here I was this, this great crisis of faith in the church way worse than I thought it was because it's not just, they pulled, you know, Catholics who weren't in the pews, the ones in the pews, only 60% of regular mass going Catholics believed in the real presence. So Four out of 10 of every Catholic in the pews on every, any given Sunday doesn't even believe. Imagine just the constant profanation of the blessed sacrament that's happening. Yes. Uh, every, every mass, you know, just going up to receive and, and treating it like it's, like it's nothing. The Lord who gave us his, his body and gave it to the church as its guardian and the the act of love 
that he offered us that is not that is being met with yawns and you know disdain i mean the worst thing is just people just don't care and and that and what and we're saying that it's because people haven't been taught something i'm sure those most catholics have heard the teaching that oh yeah catholics believe this is really jesus i'm sure catholics have heard that but it's they just don't believe it and so i I was I was struck by that and I realized that someone someone needs to make a documentary and I want to make it because I know someone will make it and I don't want just anyone to make it because I want to make it right. I want to I want to do it right. And so we we felt this urgency behind us. Um, this fire was lit under us that let's make a documentary on the liturgy. And originally we just called it the liturgy documentary because we were working on names and, and trying to raise money and meeting with people and saying, we want to make, you know, Catholic film, but I don't want you to think Catholic movies, think like a movie you'd see in the theaters. Right. And we're trying to pitch it like, will you give us, you know, a few thousand dollars to, to get us started, you know? And it was just, the doors were always closed. Mm. It, It took like, seven meetings to get a hundred dollar donation <laughs> at one point we had like a hundred dollars in the bank we're just like hmm this is we need to do something else thanks guys <laughs> we got bless you it's <laughs> appreciated thanks <laughs> yeah and so all the way back to your question rudy um like like what's what's the plan and and uh what it, it's it's almost like originally it was like I know that there's a connection between the way we worship and what we believe. So I want to make a documentary, but oh my goodness, the way this, the way this has developed from just the liturgy documentary to mass, the ages to, Oh, now it's a trilogy to, Oh, episode one is needs to be built this way. And it's all about the Latin mass and episode two needs to be built this way. It's all just like taking one step at a time, um, banging our heads against the wall (laughs) trying things out, having things fail. And uh, the Lord then shows us, you know, the the very next step and we take that next step. So episode two is coming out. And the thing that I'm most excited for regarding episode two is that, and this is why the Lord, (laughs) the Lord, I just see his hand in it because I didn't plan this. I didn't, I didn't orchestrate this, but I'm starting to discover the importance of episode two, which is we cannot forget our story. We cannot forget what happened the last 60 years. If episode two wasn't going to come out, I would fear that many, many Catholics would go along with the narrative that's been given to them about what the last 60 years was, which is Vatican II happened great optimism. Mm -hmm. We had the liturgy that was promoted by St. Paul VI, uh, St. John Twenty-Third before him, um, St. John Paul II. This is the mass of of these saints, and it's great, and Vatican II is so optimistic, and so this is your your mass too, and and then that's the narrative we've been given, is that this is the mass of the saints and Vatican II. Mm -hmm. And if an episode two is not, you know, doing everything, but I really believe when people see episode two, 
they're going to be shocked and it's going to be a watershed moment. They're going to realize that in some sense they've been lied to. Um, so yeah, it's like God is just doing an amazing work. And I feel like just a little donkey is like, you know, the, the analogy of like, you're the donkey and Christ riding on you. It, it feels like that. I'm just like, you know, taking one step at a time and yeah, he chose, he chose me, but I'm a donkey. Um, and the more I humble myself, the more he just glorifies his name. And that's what we want with this trilogy is like more Latin mass, more beauty in the liturgy, more glory to God. Ultimately, that's the end goal is that people start to attend Latin mass, that the, the love for the Eucharist grows and that he can be praised, adored, and loved in all the tabernacles of the world, even to the end of time. That's, that's, that's my end goal. That's, Great what I want. that's, yeah. that's so beautiful. And you know, what's funny is that there's, there's so much, there's so much that I don't unpack. Um, you know, I grew up, I grew up a cradle Catholic and, you know, it's not out of hate. It's not out of spite that I am a traditionalist now that there are, but there are certain kind of understandings of how things have transpired the last 60 years that have to be taken into account. The Catholic faith celebrates, it rejoices in the truth. And the truth of the matter is that the mass of the saints, the mass of the ages, the mass that, that converted the pagans in Germania and in the Viking lands and converted Mexico, the mass that Fulton J. Sheen celebrated under, the mass that my grandparents were baptized in, um, it was taken away. And I think nowadays part of the narrative is like, oh, well, you can attend anywhere you want. Why are you complaining? Now, never mind that we now know in Tristionis Custodes that there's only one unique expression of a Roman rite, apparently. And let's, you know, well, one day we'll sit back and chuckle at that, I'm very sure, because I think that you can definitely tell the Holy Spirit's on. I love what you say about the contrast of the, of the catechetical bend. There's so much of the new evangelization, whatever that term yep. means to whomever is given. And the, the importance of liturgy that, that we have picked up the banner on. Because, you know, for most Catholics, the Mass, where they go on Sunday, that is their greatest exposure to Christ and to the church of that week. Yeah. And so the question is, what are we giving to God? What does it mean to worship the God who loved us so much that he actually became incarnate, took on our flesh, our mortality, became a slave, humbled himself, crucified, died, and now... His sacrifice on the cross is locked in at every single mass. If we really believe or pretend to believe those realities, what does that look like in our liturgy? And one of the favorite things I like is if you go to any secular person in Hollywood and you say, I need a Catholic mass. This is my scene, okay? This couple is getting married. It's a, I, need, I need the church. I need a Catholic. I need the full bells and whistles. You can go to the most secular Jew in Hollywood. You can go to anybody and they will give you everything shy of the Latin mass. They, they go, That's right. we need incense. We It'll need be the, the choir. The intro to uh, true confessions. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Right. The intro to true confessions, right? That's Robert De Niro, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, and because we are creatures wired for worship and we get it. And it's amazing to me that, that as you begin to uncover the truth, there were a couple of things I had to unlearn, right? I always grew up, I believed, okay, the mass is a sacrament. My parents taught me very well about this, but it was so amazing to me, the difference when the mass is not a humanistic expression, right? When the priest faces God, 
when you get a sudden understanding of everybody here is humbling themselves before he who humbled himself for us, when, when you understand the importance of communion on the tongue and why we, why we build our churches the way we do. Um, I go to Carmel here in Littleton, Colorado, Fraternity St. Peter, it's English Gothic architecture. I love sacred architecture because that architecture forces you to lift your eyes up to the cross. You, you have to physically crane yourself up towards heaven. Much more mystical, even without telling you, much more mystical than building our churches like a gym. But what's ironic, right, is that even the Latin mass in a gymnasium church, for me, is more profound. The profundity is just demonstrably there more than the prettiest of churches offering, offering poor liturgy. That's right. I, I, I think it comes down to the ritual, because if, um, let's say you have a Nova Sordo in a very beautiful church versus, it's not like a competition, but just as a visual, versus a Latin mass in a gymnasium. Mm-hmm. The Latin mass, because of all the baked in rubrics, the ritual, the, um, the careful solemnity around it, we realize something important is happening. Just the way everything moves and plays out, everything the priest does, the careful attention to the Eucharist, like all of that is, is a ritual that can be recognized by any person. It's universal. Whereas like a Novus Ordo Mass, it can have beautiful trappings, but a lot of the ritual content has been removed. And so it's very much a lot of talking and waiting. And that's a lot of what the new mass is, is a lot of talking, exchanging and, and waiting. There's not a lot of this ritual substance to it. So I think that's why people see it as like, even in a gymnasium or on a battlefield, the Latin mass has this kind of deep existential quality to it. Well, I was just going to say, I just want to just pick up on that battlefield analogy. We all know one of the most famous pictures of Latin mass, right? I think it's during the Korean war, right? But that priest is offering mass yeah, on a Jeep. Jeep. Yeah. And it's, it's so amazing. You're just looking at it and I'm like, that completely belongs there. Like <laughs> Notre Dame, the mass of the ages belongs there. The battlefield, it belongs there. The most bombed out war zone, poorest part of the world. You know, a bunch of natives crowded around these new Jesuits just in the new world. It, it belongs there. That is the mass. That, that's, so, that's so beautiful. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, to, to piggyback off of rubrics, you're talking about rubrics earlier. Um, you know, if you were to compare side by side the rubrics of the Latin Mass and the New Mass, you see such a stark difference. And I think you you do do this in episode two. It's just so wonderful to see, to actually visualize it and internalize how much was stripped away. You, you know, you make this example, um, you know, of, of, of how the, the changes look. And it really, it does turn out to be a lot of waiting around and just dialogue. So yeah, this, this, this really amazing, uh, way of, of showing the differences between the, uh, the Latin mass rubrics and the, the new mass. And really it does turn out to be a lot of just waiting around and, and dialoguing for dialogue's sake. What, what do you say about that? Well, um, one thing that Joseph Shaw makes clear in the documentary is is one of the light bulb moments for me when we did this interview was that um, we have to think about the new mass as built with a different intention behind it. 
Mm. Um, not even saying the intention is bad or that, um, yeah, what they were trying to do is bad. So the intention with the new mass was under to get people to understand what is being said and the prayers and everything. So earlier in the, in the liturgical movement in like the 1920s, it was more about teaching about the liturgy, like catechesis about the liturgy. But by the time of Vatican II and shortly thereafter, it became about changing the liturgy so it's more accessible and more easily understood. So mm-hmm. without going through all the, all the details of the reform, the mass that we have now in the Novus Ordo is completely built so that we can understand it and participate in it. So the priest faces you, 99% of masses. Um, it's entirely in the spoken language. It's entirely out loud. There might be a little bit of silence here and there, like, you know, five seconds of silence. Well, they or, have like the or, piano or interlude, you know, all over the place sometimes. You know that? <laughs> <laughs> because we'd feel uncomfortable just waiting there. Like no one is meditating. So we're just like waiting for the next thing. We're right. waiting for the MC to like guide us to the next thing. And that's that's the difference with the Latin mass because um, because you don't have this call and response and this interaction between you and the priest, you are there and you might be not be able to follow along, but there's a lot of silence. The priest isn't concerned with what you are doing. Uh, there's a lot of Latin. They're singing chant and you don't know how to sing. So you're just kind of taking it all in and you're there to pray. You're there to have your devotion stirred so you can meditate on what's taking place. And so the difference between the two is the Novus Ordo is about understanding what's happening. And it's about vocal prayer. It's about participating vocally. Whereas the Latin mass is about this more meditative, devotional worship. And that, that, I think that's an excellent way to distinguish the two, which is why, um, unfortunately, this is, this is a, a way kind of my mind has been changed uh, making episode two is I don't think you can just add on the externals and the accoutrements of sacredness to the Novus Ordo. And that's good enough because those two, those two ideologies are in conflict. So if, if it's about participation, why are you singing Gregorian chant? If it's about understanding, why is it in Latin? Um, why is it in silence? (laughs) So, um, either it's about understanding and participating, or it's about devotion and prayer. And those things can't both be true at the same time, um, always. So, yeah. And, and to speak to that too, yeah, to speak to that too, I, I think one of the things that gets lost in translation in the new mass is that it truly is the unbloodied sacrifice of our blessed Lord. And what what that does for us is it places us at the foot of the cross. Now, what kind of uh, behavior, what kind of temperament should we have at the foot of the cross? Would there have been this sort of uh, happy clappy stuff that we typically see? I don't think so. I think I think that the mass of the old was pointing all of our hearts to that very reality 
and that's been a little bit blurred. Um, it's um, it's fascinating, and I, I I think about something else. And I'd love to get your take about this. You know, to be a devil's advocate. Yep. This new motu proprio that just came out from uh, Pope Francis, uh, Traditiones Custodis, um, which is translated to Guardians of Tradition. He talks about the the um, the fact that in the church right now that there is a, sort of a division and there's not a a, a cohesion between you know uh, traditional Catholics and the new mass, and I, I just want to be a devil's advocate. You know, in in history there hasn't been a, a moment in time where there have been two forms of the Roman rite, and it seems as if there is a sort of division there. What would you what would you say to somebody who would pose that argument to you as you highlight the beauty of tradition? Yeah, for someone who who just sees the reality on the ground today, we have the new mass, we have the Latin mass, and the Latin mass is a small kind of offshoot. I can see why they'd think like that the new mass is kind of the mass of the church. This is the unique expression. This is the mass. And we kind of tolerate the Latin mass. But when you understand the history of what happened, you see that the breach in liturgical um, development or the rupture that happened was not primarily with someone like Lefebvre, who was excommunicated for ordaining bishops um, to keep the traditional piety and traditional Latin mass alive. It was actually with the committee that put together the new mass. When you actually look at the extent of the changes, and Benedict XVI saw this when he was Ratzinger, actually after Bunini was removed from his position of power by Paul VI, um, Ratzinger was raised up as a cardinal. Um, and I think it was because Paul VI saw that, okay, something went wrong. I don't quite know what it is, but we have Benedict, or he was Ratzinger at the time, critiquing the reforms, the actual reforms put together by the committee, by the concilium after Vatican II. And he saw it as a sort of rupture. So the rupture is not, here's this new Vatican II mass that the church is, you know, 99%, you know, in favor of. And then you have this little offshoot called the Latin mass that some people like. The rupture is what happened, um, what was allowed to happen by Paul VI and the concilium. That was the rupture. And so when you understand that whole picture, you see what Benedict XVI was trying to do when he, in 2007, wanted the Latin Mass to have as much liberty as possible. And by that, I mean celebrated it as, as frequently as possible so that they could live side by side because he saw there was a rupture. So now we need them to live side by side as two forms of the same right, because we need the Holy spirit to do, to clean our dirty laundry, right? We need the Holy spirit to kind of work this out in history. And instead of like uh, winding back the clock or like, um, you know, banning the new mass or something, he just said, okay, this is the work of the Holy spirit. Let's see him organically kind of put the pieces together. That's his vision was something in the future. His vision wasn't, these are great as they are now. His vision was let these mutually enrich the other so that mm -hmm. in the future we have 
a more unified right that connects more clearly to our history because he saw there was this rupture that happened after Vatican II, not through crazy, crazy clown masses, not through Lefebvre, but through the actual committee that put together the new mass. It's, it's funny that you say that because I've heard, I feel like now that we are in 2022 and Trish Jonas Casotes has come out, um, I think the reform of the reform movement is at least dead or at least on the back heels. It doesn't, doesn't quite make a lot of sense. It never really did to me. I just kind of want to muse on when I hear mutual enrichment. And I think what a lot of times when I, I hear people I, I'm very close to, right, they, they may not attend the Latin mass, but they very much either they're, they're, they're cool with it, right? They just want it to be on its island, do its thing, or they'll tell me about the unicorn novus ordo, right? They will tell me, okay, well, I have the new mass with chant and with bells and with male altar servers and adoranto communion song. And it's funny, you were on um, some months ago, you were on uh, um, Nick Cavazos' podcast, The Traditional Thomist, um, and he's doing a whole series right now of a critique of the new mass. And what it all boils down to is that it's one thing to have the, 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 the mass of Trent, but it's another thing entirely to have the theology of Trent. And that you know, as you kind of said earlier, the new mass, when we talk about what the reverent Novus Ordo is, and I always like, I always like this point in particular, and it's not a triumphalistic thing for any Catholic who's listening, and perhaps you attend the new mass still. Um, if you've listened to this podcast by now, I hope you've made up your mind a little bit better, but whatever. <laughs> but it's funny because the, the response is essentially almost a, a smells and bells reintroduction. And it goes deeper than that when it comes to the mass. It's lovely to have smells and bells. You better believe it. But how many times have we all gone to a Sunday low mass because that's what the heart wants? And that is a very bare bones mass. You know, that is that is very quiet. You're kneeling all the time. There maybe is one altar server. There maybe is no organ. You're not really doing the responses. And so I think that it's what we're seeing right now is I don't I've never been a huge idealist of the mutual enrichment because when we're talking of the mass of the ages, we look at its organic reforms. It makes sense that St. Joseph is placed in the canon. Not an issue, right? When Pius V codified the mass, it wasn't like this was huffed out of thin air. Um, you go to the sister rites of the church, right? To the Byzantines and the Melkites and the Syro-Malabar, and you realize how much similarities these rites share and how sisterly they are to each other. And the new mass is done by committee. It is part of it, um, Eucharistic prayer too, right? Scribbled on a napkin. Um, you see the ties that people like Bugnini had. And it's surprising to me still that there's this idea that, okay, well, the problem with the Latin mass is this incomprehensibility. And it seems to me actually that part of, part of not understanding every, you can, you can flip through your missile all mass long, first off, you know, the liturgical movement in inception, I think did a lot of good. A lot of Sundays we hear the gospel and the epistle in the vernacular. But what's very funny about that, I'd love to get your take is just, I find that with the Latin mass, it is almost, it is a more direct understanding of how we look at God, which is that we will never understand, even with all of our books, even with all of our prayers, even with podcasts, and even with documentaries, we will never understand even a drop of the depth of our Lord. And I think that the Latin Mass invites us into love because when you fall in love, you have to just admit at some point that you're not going to understand everything about your wife. You're not going to understand every little, you know, there's so much things you will but there's a surrender of the will, right? It becomes above your being, that surrender to love. And I think the Latin Mass 
points us directly to the heart of God in that way. Um, to where the other mass, the new mass, it, for me, it was it was extremely lacking in that regard. Yeah, I was, I was I'm looking up a quote that uh, I think sums up what you're saying. But I also, yeah, when I think about the the new mass's attempt to try to get everyone to understand, when you try to get everyone to understand, who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? Because are you talking about the adults? Are you talking about the kids? The uh, zero to 10 year olds, who are you talking about? Um, because if you're making a liturgy that the five to 10 year olds can understand, then the, the adults are like, okay. It's like when you take your kid to a, um, not a good kids movie, like a Pixar movie, but like a emoji movie, Sony. Know, the emoji movie, which is just <laughs> stupid. Sony movie. And you're, just, <laughs> you're just there um, to like, you know, for your kid to get this eye candy and it does nothing for you. It's not meaningful. I was at a, a new mass for, um, the, for Easter, Easter vigil. No, it was Christmas, Chris. Yeah. Christmas Eve, uh, mass. And the priest said in lieu of the gospel reading, I'm going to share the story with the kids. So let's have all the kids come up. And of course, all the people there thought it was so cute and adorable. And like, they all come up and he's, he's sharing, he's telling them the story. And, but to be honest, like that, that makes sense when you're, when your focus and your goal is to get people to understand, because the other alternative is you're just talking to the adults and the kids check out because there's no like psychological mental hooks. Um, that ritual has, that has this universal qualities when you see all the care that's taking place, when you see the care in the rubrics, there's none of those psychological hooks in the new mass. It's all about speaking and understanding. And there's, there's very little of the, the rubrical, you know, intention. Um, so yeah, that, and then, yeah. So like he, he just didn't say the gospel reading and just told it to the kids and we were kind of there just watching it happen. But I, I think that priest has a good intention and is just kind of following where his conscience is leading him. And that's, that's a big problem with, with the new mass. It kind of gives us leeway. It feels like the, um, the priest is kind of like the, the MC or the, you know, creator of this, this mass experience and he can use any option he wants, you know, uh, he can do this Eucharistic prayer or that one. He can greet people in one of three ways. He can ad lib. There's like six places where he can add something like, you know, give a little homily before the, you know, the, the preface and, and things like that. So, yeah, but this is just what happens when you, when you think the liturgy is about understanding. I mean, who's going to understand? Whereas if the liturgy is this sacred ritual that has stood the test of time, well, even a zero to 10 year old is going to see it as like something important is happening. I don't know what's happening, but, and my, my little uh, four-year-old daughter uh, thinks this is like, she thinks the, the priest is, is God. She thinks the priest is Jesus because he's really important up there. And the things he's doing is really important. We can tailor so, that. We can work with that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Persona I know. Christi like, at four okay, years old. Let's go. One step at a time. That's awesome. And uh, 
but then my seven-year-old and or now she's eight who's received her first communion like she's starting to understand more about how to how to participate in and i still don't understand that's the point there's so much the depth is just yeah it's incomprehensibly deep and rich and just like you're saying that's where that's what our relationship with God should be like. That's what our ritual should be like, our liturgy. That's what our prayer life should be like. It's all connected. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have a funny story, too, uh, that happened at a Christmas vigil, the planning meeting for the, the Christmas vigil. And to speak about the priests ad-libbing and making choices uh, on the Mass and just being on the fly, the priests wanted to get rid of the long reading which had the the genealogy of our blessed lord jesus and he was trying i think his motivation at that point was to make it so that people weren't so tired at the vigil that they wanted mm. to speed up the mass a very little pastoral more. yeah it was very pastoral and he also very said company yeah he said that the 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 genealogy was was boring and <laughs> i was thinking to myself like wait a minute, hold on, the genealogy, you may not understand this. I mean, you're, you're kind of explaining this, and I'm wondering that you don't understand that this genealogy is the roadmap by which we know that he is the Messiah. This is incredibly important, and nobody is understanding this, and they're not going to get it this time because you're deciding that you don't want to include this particular reading it's insane, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, most people, to go back to something you were saying earlier, this is their only opportunity yes. to, to really understand something about God and, and what they get instead is something lacking. Mm -hmm. And it's, it just makes sense uh, when 99% of the liturgies, well, maybe not, I'm being, I'm being very hyperbolic here, so don't take me out of in context, but it makes sense when most of the liturgies are like this that that percentage of people don't believe in the real presence and what else don't they believe well we have the pew research you know, statistics on that too um, yeah like what what else do they not believe what else do they not agree with with the, with the catholic church it's very disheartening in a way mm. but i find so much solace in traditionalism and we did, right? I mean, Jordan and I, we, we found solace. We both were kind of like liturgical refugees. And we found this solace in the Latin Mass. It's such a beautiful thing to, to share with the people. It's just so awesome. And we're so happy that you guys are doing this. Thank you. I found that quote. Um, it's from Martin Mosebach, who's a great author. He wrote The Heresy of Formlessness. <laughs> and when I read this quote, I was like, this is what liturgy should be like. So he says, he argues that it should feel somewhat alien to us. Um, and I quote, a feast that has emerged through apocalyptic catastrophe, a feast of wild and terrifying beauty, the beauty of the seven-horned, seven-eyed lamb in whose blood mankind's clothes are washed white, end quote. Wow, that's that's huge. I'm going to put that in the quote for the for the show notes. Uh, <laughs> Martin Mosbach, you got to tell me. That's yeah. that's fantastic. That's that's so completely true. And one thing, Rudy, what you said, and one thing all of us that goes to Latin Mass knows is 
you know, at the end of the day, how many liturgies have we seen where it's like, we have to reduce boredom. See, we need yeah. active participation because otherwise the people will be bored. It's not about <laughs> devotion. It's not about meditation, but also here's the funny thing about ritualism. Our lives are not meant to be a hundred percent nonstop action. Right. There are, there are parts of the mass where there are plenty of times I'm like, you know, we went to for Palm Sunday, right? And it's it's a it's a lot of reading. We did the pre fifty five. You better believe it's a lot. And it's a lot of work. A lot Jealous of work. Them, eh? And our priests were being a little quiet, which meant that I was at one point I was like, okay, like I know when to kneel, but let me see where we're at. <laughs> um, it's <laughs> I not always a, get lost. I know. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. And the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah, you know what? Only up until recently have I understood the importance of proving that our Messiah is not just a guy we invented out of thin air. We have a lineage here. And it's it's not about us. We've, we, we Every year we hear this, we hear it. Okay, well, guess what? That's part of the reinforcement of the truth. And so boredom is such a subjective thing. And again, what I love about the Latin Mass and I love about the priest and ad orientum is that he's not talking to you. That's right. You know, why is, why is the priest whispering? He's not talking to you. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and good because I'm not the center of attention. I don't want to be the center of attention. Yeah, and ha- yeah. you've you've all experienced the cognitive dissonance that comes when the priest in the Novus Ordo during the the consecration is saying it loud enough so that you can hear it. And it's like it's like when you're in the same room with someone and it's like, okay, what should we pray for? It's like, okay, I'm praying, but am I talking to you? Am I talking to the Lord? And there's this weird, like, you can kind of tell when someone's not really praying. They're just yeah, performing. talking to you, mm-hmm. performing. Um, they're saying something so that you hear it in a certain way. And, you know, at the Nova Sorda Mass, the priest says the words of consecration out loud so everyone can hear, you know, in your spoken language. But it's such a sacred, solemn moment. That's like, it feels so weird. It feels like a, a play or like he's doing pretend time. And... And that's that's the one thing like it's just one example of when you add all the externals of sacred worship onto the new mass, the rubrics still say for the new mass that the canon should be said aloud. And so good priests will say the canon aloud, but it's just one of the many things that have just been lost to history is the silent canon and how. Benedict XVI called that moment a really filled silence. It's not like an empty silence. We're just waiting for something to happen, but a filled silence of worship. The the priest whispering the words of consecration, doing the most sacred act ever um, before our, or, and it's hidden from us. Um, that should be in silence. And there should be a little bit of like, it, yeah, that is the, if there's one moment in the mass that shouldn't be about us, that's the moment. So let's have that in silence. Let's have it, you know, hidden from us, so to speak. That's, that's so completely beautiful. Um, I want to, I want to pivot here in the late game and just, just talk just a little bit of shop on your filmmaker process, actually. So obviously episode two comes out in two weeks for our audience who hasn't seen episode one. I'm going to put the link in the description. Please, please, please watch it. I am so happy to see its viewer count on YouTube. Um, I watched it in a hotel room doing a gig down in Florida <laughs> with, uh, with another trad buddy of mine. That was a ton of fun, you know. Um, so 
what I love, of course, is that in our era of Rudy and I made an episode on a Catholic Renaissance in filmmaking. We now as filmmakers, there are more tools at our disposals to get beautiful images and therefore be able to craft the stories and the needs that we that we want to show out to the world. So one thing about Mass of the Ages that I love is I just love the image. I think the interviews are are shot extraordinarily well. I'm extraordinarily envious because you have a shot from my church here, Mount Carmel, where the camera is trucking back and it's a requiem mass. It's a casket and it looks it looks so good. So I just want you to tell me, you know, a lot of people when they think of Catholic filmmaking, it, they think, oh, it's just a one two man band. They show up with a Canon 5D and it's shaky <laughs> and they throw a light in and you know what I mean? But this is this is a real deal documentary. So tell us the tools, tell us how many like is this a, like is it a full set? Are you shooting multiple places at one time? What does that process look like for for you guys? Yeah, so a lot of it is a lot of it happens in pre-production in our planning. So, you know, some documentaries are because of the nature of what you're filming, um, you can't really plan what you're going to film. It just you show up and it happens. And where whereas what we're doing is we can find the stories, um, we can pre-interview them. So get on the phone with whoever we're interviewing, do an interview before the interview, kind of an, an interview light. So we know pretty much what they're going to say. So then we know what we want to film. And then we can schedule time. Like for example, the catafalque shot where we're, we're tracking backwards. Um, you, that's not a shot you can get while there's a requiem mass happening. <laughs> it's um, if you really want to get in there and show and like immerse the audience in the visual, then Obviously, you need to set up some staged shots too. So we all no. we had, we filmed a lot of masses. No way! How did no? <laughs> that wasn't a drone. Like during the like, mass? a drone during like a wedding mass. You, just, you killed you killed my dream, Cameron. <laughs> Not to derail you, but we had a guest on Catholic Drive Time, and he was a, a hermit who did this uh, pilgrimage from I think the Alps down to the, the Holy Land. And he has this beautiful footage of him doing a, a mass out in the desert. And he's just like, you know, he lifts up the hosts and it's just so wonderful. And he tells us, look, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I just want to clarify, you know, this, this actually wasn't a consecrated host. I needed to do different angles. So what you saw wasn't actually a mass. And Joe's heart was just like devastating. <laughs> All film is deception. <laughs> Smoke and mirrors. <laughs> It's also a more a more pious way to approach it, I think. I don't want to yeah. get up close and personal. I mean, the mass is more important than my film. So even though, oh, this is just any old Sunday mass. Well, no, this is the mass. And so mm -hmm. if we're clomping around, like making a disturbance, that's the last thing we want. So when we filmed masses, we found the best spot to be, like actual masses, was um, sometimes in the sacristy, there's side doors. We'll just open right up into the sanctuary. So if we're tucked in the corner, we can get really good angles of what's happening and without disturbing anyone. So we can snipe people, we call it, you know, put on a long lens, get yeah. really close, um, shoot slow-mo. So you have a lot more room in post to put things together. But then we also plan out for, to really capture the mass like you've never seen it before because those are the angles we've seen but to really draw on this emotional character 
of the mass and why the, the liturgy is like psychologically important to us, we set up a lot of stage shots. So that was, you know, in terms of crew, it was a handful of us, you know, myself, director, uh, Tom, the cinematographer, um, producer, Jonathan would be there. We might have like an assistant um, and then someone who's just there because they're being filmed or they're, they're local and, you know, setting up uh, a hazer, just get some nice uh, atmosphere, Um, you know, reserving the space. So no one's in there. So we, we have free reign. The Eucharist is not in the tabernacle. So we can, we can act like it's a film set Mm -hmm. shooting on, uh, you know, 6k sensors. I think it's a 6k sensor. It's You're the, using, we're using black magics, right? Black okay. magic, um, uh-huh. pocket and black magic Ursa. Uh, for those in the audience, we're not actually, well, I mean, it's cinema voodoo. It's not actual voodoo. These are, these are, yeah. cameras. don't <laughs> worry. Say. I don't Haze and black you, magic. You and... should go to confession. I know. <laughs> Someone's going to come be like, Oh no, how could they? <laughs> That's that's a good point. Yes, we can toss it around as filmmakers, but yeah, the brand is kind of sounds kind of funny uh, to, to untrained ears. That's for sure. Um, and the interviews, we we make a particular effort. So if you're making a Catholic documentary, everyone shoots people in churches. It's like, oh, I'm going to shoot people in a church yeah. or a, uh, if I can't get a church, then it's your living room. And that's like the only two shots you see. Um we made an intentional effort to shoot interviews in people's kind of natural habitats. What communicates their vocation? What communicates who they are? It's an extension of themselves. So we do film in churches when we're filming priests. Mm-hmm. Uh, Monsignor Morris, we loved filming him in the sacristy. Um, the hero of episode one, Christine, we filmed her in her with her dining room table and in this beautiful lit up space. That's her personality. So it was never it's not primarily about um, the, the easiest place to film or even the prettiest place to film. It's primarily about what says something about this character. And then, um, and then Tom, our cinematographer knows how to make that beautiful. And we kind of cheat certain things sometimes to, to make it look a little, little better. Like for example, um, in episode two, uh, we film Bishop Athanasius Schneider and we get to the, you don't get a lot of choices when you get to film with Schneider because he's, he's always, he, he doesn't have a lot of time to waste. And so we get into this room and it's in the basement of this church and it's just books on the wall, but not nice bookshelves. And it's like beige walls, no art outlets, <laughs> you know, just nothing of character or substance there. And then we look on the other side of the room and there's these, just these cabinets. And we said, well, we can make this look like it's a sacristy. So if we light it so that, you know, the light's a little warmer, you know, obviously we're going to kill all the lights that are, you know, synthetic and um, the uh, fluorescent lights. Um, we don't want to mix, you know, lighting colors. But then we have this nice soft light that kind of falls off the background. Then you have these brown cabinets and we just add a little crucifix there you know we don't want to add like a ton of statues and like put all this religious art it's just like no no no. what would this naturally look like if this was a sacristy how do we make this kind of a natural habitat for a schneider so just a little cross you know cabinetry and it actually looks beautiful it's just very simple 
but it's a it's it's a it's a shot that works. So, yeah. Yeah, I I love I love filmmaking magic. I mean, it's part of the most fun is, and and what it ties to your audience. You know, we get this the profundity of seeing the mass is people have never seen it before in high resolution, just beautiful. When I started filming. Uh, mass for the fraternity in Los Angeles, one thing that motivated me was, you know, I wanted to do, you know, I, I had my secular gigs and I wanted to do something for the church. And also I love trad so much, but I was like, my gosh, I'm so sick of looking at iPhone footage of little parts <laughs> of the mass, you know, <laughs> like yeah. I can't do that. You know, that's not what it is, but I also love, um, and again, I haven't seen episode two just yet, but I do love in episode one, there is this kind of realism. And I think it helps reinforce the idea that, you know, as traditional Catholics, we're not a lofty, holier than thou. We shouldn't be a lofty, holier than thou kind of people. You are you are interviewing a lot of a lot of our our most famous sort of representatives, if you will. But then you also have this deeply personal story, of course, about um, a woman, a wife, of course, who's early on right, who lost her husband, and this is like the Latin mass is what binds the family together. Um, I love. I think that that just adds to the fact that you know these are real people. It's not this weird, awkward subculture. No, it's not like the rad trad myth kind of thing. But these are, you know, and they're in their natural habitat and, and you can be too. So I, I'm just I'm just utterly astounded by by the image of it. And um, I think that I, I think that one of a couple of your shots have made their way to our, our image board, right, of ideas for <laughs> how, how we've shot some of our, our stuff in, at the AI. So, you know, I can't I can't wait to see episode two, but I I am. Um, I'm deeply excited, and I think I think you guys are really doing God's work. Thank you, man. I'm really excited for you to see it. Um, I love talking to people about episode two right after they see it because mm -hmm. uh, the wheels start spinning. Well, you just have to oh come back God. on. Oh no! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, if you made it this far, you know, thank you so much, and we appreciate Mr. O'Hearn for for coming on and discussing this new episode of Mass of the Ages. Again, it's going to drop on May 26th, so that's just a little under two weeks from now, and we hope that you'll check it out. But if you want to keep supporting the GladTrad podcast, and be honest, you know that you do, smash the like button. Don't just, don't just touch it. Don't click on it. I want you to smash it. I want you to, to break your keyboard on the smashing, okay? <laughs> And share it with your friends, share it with your family. This is a wonderful interview, I think, that would be uh, helpful for somebody who's on the fence, who's thinking about, hey, maybe tradition is the way. Maybe tradition is something that is, is going to edify my, my soul, my, my worship of God. So send it with a friend. Keep us in your prayers. And if you want to support the podcast, of course, we have... We have indulgences that you could buy. So check out our Patreon page. That would be wonderful. But we are quickly approaching 1,000 uh, subscribers on our channel. And to celebrate that, we would like to open up a Telegram channel just to keep in touch with you. And so be on the lookout for uh, more information about that coming soon. And we're, we're going to open it up to everyone so that we can just keep in, in contact Make sure to check out Cameron O'Hearn's film, the, the Mass of the Ages, the first episode, and again, the second one coming on. And uh, uh, Mr. Mr. O'Hearn, where can they watch the, uh, the episode and where can they get more information about you? So for more information, just go to latinmass.com. Um, and then if you want to watch the film, join us May 26th live that evening, which is Ascension Thursday in the, the old calendar. 
So May 26th, you can search Mass of the Ages on YouTube and watch it live with us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, that's going to do it for us. Thank you so much for watching, and God bless you and Mary keep you. See you next time.